morning. This is the text, uh, teaching text for our service today. It's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God for the people of God. Join me in prayer. God, this morning, uh, our intention is to hear from you, to receive a word from you. And so this morning, God, we pray that we would do just that, that we could discern your voice amongst us. Lord, I pray um, that my views and interpretation of these teachings of Jesus uh, as faithful as I hope they will be, um, that they will not get in the way of people hearing from you. Lord, we seek to be a community that is spacious, where people can disagree on secondary matters. And so I pray that even as one interpretation of this is preached, there is still the spaciousness for disagreement for a community in your name, to truly thrive. In the name of Jesus, amen. Rwanda, Alabama, and Jerusalem. Those are the three places I want to visit together today. Rwanda, Alabama, and Jerusalem. Let's talk a bit about Rwanda. I'm no expert on the history of Rwanda, but I want to share a little bit about Rwanda. Of course, the history goes back much farther than this, but by around 1700, the kingdom of Rwanda was ruled by the Tutsi clan. And under leadership here, it began to grow and expand, become a larger, more established kingdom, particularly under King Kigali Rabujiri, around 1853 to 1895. Under King Rabujiri, some administrative reforms began, which caused a rift 
between the two largest sort of ethno-racial populations in the region, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Land was stolen from the Hutus, and they had to participate in forced labor to regain their land. The two people groups were treated differently, but even at this point, they shared a language and a culture. They had similar respect for certain things, and so they were pretty unified. Then in 1897, Germany established a presence in the country, and they formed an alliance with the king. The German colonists, they favored the Tutsis over the Hutus. And it was because they believed that the Tutsis were migrants from Ethiopia and that they were racially superior to the Hutus. So... The Tutsis, who already had a bit of power because their king was from this tribe, gained even more power, even more authority in the country, and even more wealth. Eventually, during World War I, Belgium took control of the country of Rwanda. And by 1930, they had introduced official division. So until this point, you could kind of, if you were a a wealthy Hutu, you could kind of pass as a Tutsi. You could get into that clan. But at this point, you're given out identity cards. So your race and identity is officially determined based on these cards that are handed out in 1930 by Belgium. And these three ethno-racial groups that they divided people into were Hutu, which was 84%. Tutsi, which is about 15%, and then Twa, which was 1%. Everyone was labeled and sort of locked in. This is what your ethno-racial identity now is. Eventually, some Christian missionaries come, and they begin sort of mythologizing the Tutsi people. Because at this time, there was a really, really sad piece of Christian history, which was this idea of the, the, cor- the curse of, of Ham, that those from the, the Kushite regions of the Horn of Africa were meant to be enslaved people. So Christian missionaries began spreading these theories about the curse of Ham, which is one of Noah's sons in the Old Testament. And this misunderstood curse of Ham uh, begins creating more hatred for the Tutsis. Not only are they a smaller population that has power over people, but now they're thought of as those who should be cursed. Then after World War II, there slowly begins a Hutu emancipation movement. Now the people are going to band together and seek out their rights. Some of this, interestingly enough, was fueled on by Catholic missionaries because they arrived in Rwanda and decided, you know what, we're going to band with the oppressed, with those who don't have power, with the Hutus, and we're going to kind of stay away from the Tutsi elite. It began with sort of a good idea, More and more Hutus get get educated. A lot of them become Catholic clergy. And they're kind of getting some steps towards power. Well, from here, the history and politics get super complicated. 
But suffice it to say, you have extreme conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis for decades. And through a series of events, the larger population, the Hutus, who thought of themselves as historically oppressed, begin to organize in greater and greater levels. Now not only are there newspapers where you can kind of organize people together, but there's radio. And the Hutus put together their own radio station where they can broadcast how to sort of create an uprising. They also get a hold of a lot of uh, ways to import things like machetes and other tools that would be used for agriculture, but they end up using them for war. On this radio station, not only do they organize people, but they, for a few years, begin a campaign of propaganda to dehumanize the Tutsis. So not only are we going to need to uprise against them, but we need to make sure we don't view them as humans. And so Inyenzi becomes, I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, but this word that they use for the Tutsis, meaning they're non-human pests or cockroaches, which must be exterminated like all cockroaches. So this becomes the talk on the radio from the Hutus about the Tutsis, and this big uh, uprising is swelling. And the stage is set for the most brutal genocide in modern history. You're probably familiar with it. It was a very uh, big event in the mid-'90s, Movies were made, documentaries were made about it. Somewhere between, the different sources say vastly different amounts of numbers, but somewhere between half a million and a million people were murdered. 95% of them were Tutsis. Uh, 30% of the Twa population was murdered, um, almost by chance. And on top of the murder were degrading acts. I mean, terrible, terrible acts of rape, mutilation, um, because they they were cockroaches. So you just exterminate them as best as you can. All that happened in just 100 days. Maybe upwards of a million deaths. The Hutus, the historically oppressed, became the oppressors. But of course, this isn't just Rwanda. This is human nature. Paulo Freire, who is a Brazilian educator, he's passed, but he wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He said in it, you may have heard this, the oppressed, instead of striving for liberation, tend themselves to become oppressors. And while not to the scale of Rwanda, we've seen it over and over again in history. In fact, even a contemporary of Jesus, Livy, or who we call his full name Titus Livius, so contemporary of Jesus, Roman historian, he said this, our anxiety to avoid oppression leads us to practice it ourselves. The injustice we repel, we visit in turn upon others as if there were no choice except either to do it or to suffer it. So this becomes a problem. This is a problem. In the world's imagination, there are two choices. 
Either the oppressed stay oppressed, systems remain unfair, privileging the privileged, or the oppressed become the oppressor. And the cycle continues and continues and continues. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Tutsis abused and oppressed us, so we'll do the same to them. Maybe even a little more, just for good measure. Or you've heard it said, love your neighbor. Well, if you're a Hutu, your neighbor is the one like you who's also a Hutu. And hate your enemy. Hate the Tutsis, they're cockroaches anyway. It seems that division and retaliation is baked into the brokenness of our world. And many of us don't even lament it. In fact, we can even elevate retaliation and revenge into a sort of justice. You wronged me, so I get to wrong you. It's only fair. Or some of us feel like if I've been wronged, if I have this pain, What on earth can I do with it other than put it on the person who gave it to me? It's as if that's the only way to receive healing, is to place my pain back onto you, my enemy. Or if I've been humiliated or degraded by you, the only thing I can do to get rid of that humiliation and degradation is to place it on the one who gave it to me, my enemy. Retaliation and revenge... Simply turn the one wronged into the one doing wrong. But if not retaliation, then what? Then what? Are we supposed to be okay with allowing ourselves or others to remain oppressed? Are we just meant to be walked all over like doormats? Is that what Jesus is advocating? Should the Hutus have remained in their unfair situation forever? Should they have just let that 15% of the population reap all the rewards of the work and service of the rest of the population? Is that what Jesus wanted? Or were the Hutus right to take up arms and fight for their freedom, but they just took it too far? You know, they should have just killed a few people, got their point across, then that would have been okay. Do you see the bind? Is the answer spineless passivity or violence? Are those our two choices, and are we okay with either one? Jesus invites us into a third way. Come with me now to Alabama. In the beginning of 1965, at the beginning of that year, Lowndes County, Alabama, which is outside of Montgomery, was around 80%. So not quite 85%, but 80% African American. And not a single one of them was registered to vote. There's a new documentary out about this county um, that you can watch to learn much more than I'm going to share. But not a single one. Like, that's not hyperbole. It's not a single... African-American person was registered to vote. 80% made up the population of that county. 
And there were poll taxes. So if you wanted to get your registration to vote, you needed to have some money, and these people did not have the amount of funds to do that. And in fact, most of the black population there were, were sharecroppers, which means they didn't fully own their land, and they had to work an inordinate amount of hours and still could never really get ahead or get out of debt because uh, everything that they would own would be on credit by white uh, landowners. So 80% of the population had no voting rights in the county. Um, <laughs> there were no black police officers. There were no black officials in any way in the county. And because of that, if you did try to register the vote, even if you had the funds to pay the poll tax, the person who owned your land would make darn sure you'd be kicked off it if you tried to. There were all sorts of ways they would keep you from gaining power. You might lose your job. You might end up beaten on the side of the road. Now, this is 80% of the population. They could have banded together. They had farming tools that could be used as weapons. They could have gotten together into a violent uprising, not much different than the Hutus. And I could see why they would want to. The state, the whole state, was a part of the Alabama Democratic Party. This was their symbol. White supremacy for the right. The white rooster, proud. This was George C. Wallace's motto. This is how we're going to keep law and order in our state. If I was 80% of the population of a county and this was the sort of rule of the land, that was, I could see why you'd want to get together and violently overthrow it. But instead, they band together uh, with the help of a man named John Hewlett and the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. So in March of 1965, a few months before the National uh, Voting Rights Act would even pass, John Hewlett and preacher John Lawson became the first two black people registered to vote in Lowndes County in over 60 years. And slowly, through their organization, through their work together, uh, more and more African American, more and more black people were getting registered to vote. But I mean very slowly. (laughs) Very slowly. And many would lose their jobs or their homes, and they had to move away. So if you're Landowner found out that you registered to vote. Um, they would somehow get the land back from you, and so many had to move out. Others joined uh, a tent city that they put up in the outskirts of town. So if you wanted to go and vote, you're kicked out of your home, off your land, and you end up uh, living in tents just so you can remain a part of the county to put your voting rights that you just lost everything for into action. The all-white police force was, of course, anything but helpful. In fact, in August of 1965, so just a few months into these folks trying to get voting rights, uh, the sheriff elected a special county deputy. He was a volunteer. His name was Tom Coleman. And Coleman is most famous for standing outside of a Varner's cash store which was one of the few local places that wasn't uh, segregated, that non-whites could go and get a soda pop or something like that. 
Well, there were two white protesters, Jonathan Daniels, who was a 26-year-old seminary student training to become a pastor, and Father Richard Morris Rowe. And they went to this store with two uh, young black women who were also protesters with them. And they go to get something to drink. They had just been released from being arrested for protesting. So they're going just to get something to drink at the only place you can go if you're a non-white to get something to drink. And there's Special Deputy Tom Coleman standing outside of Verner's with a shotgun and a holstered pistol. Coleman was barring the front and he, and he, he starts to raise his shotgun at one of the young ladies, Ruby, Ruby Sales, 17-year-old. He raises it at her, and Jonathan, the white seminary student, says, no way. And he pushes Ruby down onto the floor, only for a full load of the shotgun shells to hit him in the chest and kill him instantly. Then... Father, Morris Rowe, grabs the other girl and starts running, puts her in front of him as he's running, and he gets shot in the back with a full load from the shotgun. Not dying, but being severely injured. Coleman goes on trial. Good, he goes on trial. But he claims self-defense. None of the four were armed. He claimed self-defense, and the all-white jury in Lowndes County acquits him. Not guilty. And he lives the rest of his life till he dies of natural causes in his 80s. So that's, that's just a point, like, what is the atmosphere like here? Okay, why you might want to have a violent overthrow of these powers. Well, five whole years later, after this, in 1970, uh, now a few thousand African Americans were finally registered to vote. And so they vote for the first black sheriff in the county, the man who originally started organizing them, John Hewlett. And what did he do when he comes into power? He could have armed all of them. He vowed to treat whites and blacks with equal respect as sheriff. He vowed to try to heal the past wounds of the county. And he ended up serving as sheriff for 22 years in that county. Now there's obviously many differences between Alabama and Rwanda in so many ways. Is it even fair to compare them? I'm not sure. But I'd like to because there's also many similarities particularly with the percentage of the groups that were being oppressed. And Alabama could have been just as violent. But the way of Jesus proved more compelling. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Again, we have to wrestle with Jesus' words. When he says to turn the other cheek, is he saying we should be docile doormats who simply let others walk all over us? Well, you see, we actually get to Alabama today uh, by way of India, traveling all over the place, okay? I know it's a bit of detour, but we need to go to India in order to talk to E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones is a famous missionary to India, and the work God did through him is unbelievable. If you're not familiar with it, um, I encourage you to look into E. Stanley Jones and what God did through him there. He was actually nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 1962 because of his missionary work in India. Dr. Jones said that Jesus isn't advocating passivity, but creative love. So listen to his words. This is what E. Stanley Jones says about turning the other cheek. This will be on the screen as well. It is this audacious offensive of love that forces the man to go further, the man who hits you, and thus to break down. He tries to break your head. And you, as a Christian, try to break his heart. In turning the other cheek, you wrest the offensive from him and assume moral charge of the situation. You choose your own battleground and your own weapons. You refuse his and compel him to stand on ground with which he is not familiar and to face weapons he does not know how to face. Do you get what he's saying? Do you see how he's proposing this imaginative third way of Jesus? We normally think there's only two options when we're slapped. What are they? Option one, you slap back. Preferably harder than they slapped you. Option two, you take the slap, you don't hit back, you cower down, and you say, please stop. Option one degrades the humanity and image of God in the offender. Option two degrades the humanity and image of God in you. The third way of Jesus, you turn the other cheek. Uh, Believe it or not, but this actually puts you in the driver's seat. Someone hits you, doesn't say just let them hit you again on the other side. That's not what Jesus said. He uses an active word. You, taking your own agency, turn the other cheek. And what Jones, Dr. Jones is saying is that by doing this, you're trying to break the other person's 
humanity open, that they would have to hurt you so much that they would be hurting themselves so much that they actually stop. You claim agency, but in a way that doesn't degrade or destroy the image of God in the other person. Or someone sues you to take your shirt, Jesus says. Two options. One, get a better lawyer. Don't just get their shirt, get their whole estate. Option two, submit to their lawyer and give him your shirt. Is there a third option? Or someone asks you to walk a mile or forces you to walk a mile with them. Option one, plant your feet in the ground and tell them, no way, I'm not moving a step. Use guns if necessary to stop them forcing you to walk. Option two, submit and walk the mile. Option one, degrades the humanity and image of God in the offender. Option two, degrades the humanity and image of God in you. In each scenario, Jesus offers another way. You can actively love your enemy in a way that disarms them. Now, by doing this, you need a community that's doing this. Because it's not like one-to-one, like every time they'll see, oh, I'm being inhumane, and stop. Right? Which means that it sort of guarantees suffering. It guarantees, if you try and live into the way of Jesus, that uh, somebody in your community will be hurt or killed. That's what happened in Alabama. Many were injured, hurt, degraded by trying to pursue the way of Jesus. But, you know, Jesus didn't say that we'd be able to avoid suffering. He said quite the opposite. If you try and follow me, I guarantee there will be suffering in your life. I recognize that this might sound crazy and impractical, downright dangerous. The only way I know how to be faithful to the text that stands before me is to offer this way. And so I do that. Uh, there's, so, so one way this looks, okay? I know it sounds crazy. In Liberia, we're not going there on the map, but in Liberia, um, under, under Charles Taylor, he was getting all these child soldiers, uh, terrible, terrible stuff under his leadership. Um, deplorable. And so what happens is the women of Liberia, they band together. And they say, we want peace. And they get together uh, and they start advocating for peace in these strange ways. And eventually Charles Taylor comes out and agrees to talk to them. He talks to them. So now all of a sudden stuff gets moved to the city for some bigger delegations and peace talks and The peace talks aren't really helping that much. It seems like people are coming to talk about peace, but they're not willing to to really do anything about it because it's too messy and complicated. So these women keep saying, we want peace. Well, eventually they go down where the talks are happening and they link arms, all of them, around uh, the building where the talks are happening. And they say, we're not leaving until you guys are serious about figuring out how to bring peace to Liberia. Okay, well, what else would you do? They call the police. The police start coming, 
And the main woman who's kind of banding them together, they are about to grab her to arrest her. And she does something. I'm not fully going to say you should do this, okay? She starts undressing. (laughs) And she says, you think you can humiliate me, slap my cheek, by arresting me? I will humiliate myself even further by disrobing in front of you. Now, she's an older woman. And in this part of Africa, there's a curse on you if you see an older woman, a mother, naked. So she's very creative, you see. She's using this to say, you want me to do this? I'll do this. And then they'll all be cursed. And guess what happens? They take her seriously. They take the women seriously. And peace talks seriously begin happening. Charles Taylor, exiled out of the country. Work begins to happen to bring about peace. It's not perfect, you know. Everything doesn't happen perfect, and now it's all fixed. But it's real progress that happened. Because they took this third way of Jesus serious. So yes, it's crazy, but it works. It works. In 1963, Dr. Jones, he received the Gandhi Peace Award, this missionary to India. See, he'd become a close friend of Gandhi. And after Gandhi's assassination, he wrote a biography about Gandhi's life and how it impacted him and what their friendship meant to him. And this biography about Gandhi eventually makes its way into Martin Luther King Jr.'s hands. And he tells E. Stanley Jones' daughter that this biography is what convinced him about the nonviolent way of Jesus. See how we're getting back to Alabama? Martin Luther King, up to that point, he thought, this is nice for Jesus to say this. He must mean just like one-to-one relationships. Like, literally, if a friend of mine hits me, I won't hit him back. But there's no way this could cause any actual change or peace in the world. Then he reads this biography by E. Stanley Jones, and he's convinced that the way of Jesus mixed with the methods of Gandhi might actually bring about some good in the world. In fact, he becomes convinced that nonviolent action is the only way to true freedom and reconciliation. You've probably heard his famous words here, but they're so beautiful. Listen to this. King says, Through violence you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate Cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Only love is transformative. It brings about something new and better. Only love is redemptive. It actually heals what's happened in the past. Only love creates a new way. 
This influence of love by the way of Jesus created a new possibility in Lowndes County, Alabama. Justice didn't need to mean bloodshed and genocide of the oppressive white minority. It didn't mean that the 80% black community needed to take up arms. There was a better way. Truly the way of Jesus. And finally, we journey to Jerusalem. At the end of this chapter... At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors, the hated people of the society, doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is this King of the Jews proclaiming to us? Jesus is ultimately declaring that in His kingdom, we are to become people of perfect love. The word here for perfect is the Greek word teleos. Telios, and it's similar to another Greek word you might know that's just telos, T-E-L-O-S. And the idea here is it has to do with perfection in the sense of complete. Other translations say complete, be complete in your love as God is complete. It has to do with being complete, it has to do with a holistic type of love, it has to do with being oriented towards the proper end goal, going the right Direction, the right way, like telos. Jesus genuinely wants us to become the kind of person who by default loves our enemies. The kind of person internally who after being struck actually thinks about another way to bring about reconciliation rather than striking back. That requires a lot of character growth because for most of us, our initial reaction is going to be to fight back or run away. But I think Jesus actually wants us to become the kind of people through practices like prayer, study of Scripture, silence and solitude, Sabbath, who actually become people of love. Not perfect in the sense of perfectionism, Perfect in the sense of a whole and complete love of others that we grow in day by day by day. This is a life that loves completely, holistically, with integrity, as the earlier verses in our chapter teach. This is the love of Jesus. And it's only possible in so much that we are sustained by the love of Jesus. The reason that you can turn the other cheek when being hit is because you believe in a God who hung on a cross and somehow inaugurated new life. You know, as a Christian, that death is not the final word. So you do not need to be afraid of it. You know that God is at work 
restoring and renewing all things so you don't have to take up arms to get it done yourself. This is only possible by way of the cross. Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, one of the most prolific living theologians, he's somewhere in his 90s now, he says this about these final verses of Matthew 5. Mutual love is nothing special. It only means repaying good with good. But love of our enemy is not love as repayment. It is prevenient and creative love. Anyone who repays evil with good is truly free. He no longer merely reacts. He creates something new. He follows nothing but his own resolve and no longer lets the rules of action be dictated by his opponent. Jesus did not die cursing his enemies, but with a prayer of them on his lips. He gave his life for the people who condemned him and put him to death. In his life, his sufferings, and his death, he revealed to us the perfection of God. Then Moltmann goes on talking about this perfection. He says this. This is what God's perfection is according to him. His perfection is his limitless capacity for suffering. He is all-powerful because he's all-enduring. His uniqueness is the unfathomably creative power of his love. If this were not so, none of us would be able to talk about the love of God he or she has experienced. For God loved us when we were still his enemies. While we were godless, Christ died for us. And his spirit disarms us when we want to be the enemies of other people. The ultimate example of enemy love is Jesus on the cross. Were it not so, I love that he says, none of us would even be able to talk about love of God because we were enemies of God who have now experienced the love of God. And Jesus is saying, go and do likewise. Jesus is the embodiment of He's what it looks like on the cross. He's what it looks like. Enemy love. The embodiment of enemy love. And he invites us to follow him in becoming that kind of love even to our enemies. This means suffering will be inevitable in the Christian life. True Christianity does not accept the status quo. The way things are. We believe in justice anywhere really is a threat to justice anywhere. Yet, the way of Jesus does not invite the violent overthrow of power. This means suffering is inevitable. But God can use and does use suffering to transform us. And this is why Paul, in Romans 5, connects the idea of suffering with the enemy love of Christ. So I just want to end reading these verses from St. Paul from chapter 5. He ties it together. His words are better than mine. Beginning in verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. you pray with me?